I'll be reading from Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 21. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family, in heaven and on earth, derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power, through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you be that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Is it Tyler, is it? Tyler, you can come with me whenever I speak and you can do the Bible reading. (laughs) Well done, mate. (laughs) Well, good morning. It's nice to be back. I think I've been along here... um, around once a year for the last three or four years so um, for those of you that haven't met me I'm Tim and I feel really really honoured to be back with you this morning so thanks for the opportunity just to reflect on these amazing words that um, that Paul writes uh, here and um, yeah Father I just pray that you would help us to sense something new in, in, in these familiar words and that we would be encouraged when we walk out of here in a little while. Amen. So uh, I'm sure some of you uh, will have noticed this a few months ago when a former Prime Minister, Bob Hawke, passed away and there was all sorts of headlines about Bob Hawke and his uh, Prime Ministership and his personal life and his habits. But there was a particular scene in the life of Bob Hawke that many of you, if you were born since 1980, and that's quite a few of you, won't know, but you may have seen it on the news after he died. And he was dressed in a jacket with Australian kangaroos all over it, and he had a beer in his hand. That was fairly common for Bob Hawke. Um, and uh, he, was, he was declaring um, a spontaneous public holiday. Can anyone remember what that was for? You, some of you are nodding, you oldies. Yeah, what, what was it? Yeah, it was, when the, it was when Australia finally won the America's Cup, and... Uh, for those of you that were, have been, you know, haven't been around since 1980, uh, this was a massive event in Australian sporting history. The America's Cup was a, um, a yacht race and we don't sort of focus on it so much more because since Australia won it and then the Kiwis won it and then they changed all the rules, it sort of has lost its interest. But for decades and decades, the world was trying to knock America off in this race called the America's Cup. It was a yacht race. It went all the way back to 1851. It was a challenge between the Poms and the Americans. Um, for the, actually, back then, if you controlled the oceans, you controlled the world. And so it was sort of a symbolic competition between the British Empire and the Americans um, over who had sort of domination of the oceans. And a challenge was issued, and the British put this challenge out there and the Americans designed this massive you know, yacht and the British had one and they fought it out and the Americans won. 
And that's why, the, and the yacht they won it with was called America. That's why it was called the America's Cup after the first yacht that won it. Um, and challenges were mounted for every four years for 20, 24 separate challenges. And it became the longest running winning, the longest running winning streak in sporting history. Um, and famous people put like millions and millions of dollars into designing boats that could somehow beat the Americans. And when, whenever there was some, a challenger that got really close, the Americans would fight in court that there was, they'd broken the rules and there was legal challenges about it. And in, in the end, it was an Australian billionaire called Alan Bond who had a, had, a, had a friend who was a yacht designer, a genius sort of a guy. Some of you remember his name. What was it? See, you know the story. Ben Lexon designed this yacht, Australia 2, and... Um, and there was a secret about this yacht, and it was really quick, and it really put the wind up the Americans. I mean, they were scared of this thing. And, and in the end, when it, they, they had these trials with all these other countries that wanted to challenge for the America's Cup, and the trials took two to three years of, of races. And, and Australia went, managed to win through all of these trials against all these other countries and finally got the right to challenge the Yanks for the America's Cup. And... Of course, it went into this series of seven, seven, and America won three, and Australia won three, and there was one race to go. And pretty much the entire country tuned in on that race. It was massive news, because no one had even gotten close. And uh, as we know, the story, Australia 2 won this last race by about, you know, it was only about like 100 metres, and the nation just went nuts. The backstory behind that was that Alan Bond's designer, Ben Lexon, had come up with a new design and there were very strict rules about how these 12-metre yachts were to be designed and they could not be changed above the waterline. The dimensions, the length, the width, the height of the mast, the types of masts, the types of sails were all, you know, highly regulated. The only thing they could play around with was what was below the water, and Ben Lexon had come up with a design of a keel in this yacht, and no one knew what it was except the Australian team. Well, the Amer- it drove the Americans nuts. They just worked. And so they, you know, in the trial races, they had helicopters above the race to try and get photographs, and they realised I couldn't see it, so they took thermal imaging cameras, couldn't quite see it. When the yachts were brought back to the San Diego Harbour where these races were being run... They sent divers in under the water with camera gear to try to take pictures of this keel of this yacht. So Alan Bond had shark nets put around the, you know, the marina so the divers couldn't get in. And it was like this. And then they took it to the Supreme Court. They must be cheating because this yacht couldn't possibly be faster than the American one. And it went all the way to the court and that was knocked out. And so this final race, Australia won it. And the scenes on the dock in San Diego are famous. When Alan Bond, this you know, billionaire, brings in this crane and he tells everybody to lift the yacht out of the water and, and the whole and there were thousands and thousands of journalists with cameras and TV cameras and you know whatever taking pictures to see what in the world it was about this yacht that was different. And if you go to Fremantle, and I've been there, and go to the Fremantle Maritime Museum, you'll see it, and it's the famous winged keel. He had designed this keel that had never been designed before with wings on it, and it gave that yacht particular agility, and so it won the race. What the heck has that got to do with the Bible passage of it? Well, it's got everything to do with it. I'll tell you why, because... um, 
in yachting, and if you were at Belgrave Heights when I gave a, a, an extended series on this whole notion of what's below the waterline in your life, you'll discover that the Bible tells us that it's the places that people don't see that are the most important places in your life. That what's below the waterline of your life is infinitely more important to God than what's above the waterline that people see. And if you know something about yachting, you'll know that the keel is the stabilizing central weight that keeps yachts upright. You can sail through incredible storms, massive seas. You can have your sails ripped off, your masts torn down. And we see pictures like this, don't we, of yachts that have survived hurricanes and they're still afloat and they're still upright, even though everything above decks has gone. Why? Because there's weight beneath the waterline. There was another America's Cup challenge in New Zealand before this one, and Australia had a yacht called Kookaburra. And it was a beautiful yacht, but there was an engineering problem, and the keel, which weighs tons, it's lead, the keel wasn't attached particularly well, and it fell off. And that $25 million yacht sank in seven seconds. That's a spiritual principle. That if there's weight beneath the waterline of your life, you can, you can go through the most horrendous storms and still remain upright if there's ballast beneath the waterline. We all know what it's like, don't we? to see people that are impressive. And we live in a culture and a society that is relentlessly in pursuit of what's impressive. It might be how good-looking you are or how much money you've accumulated or what status in society you've achieved or how intelligent you are or how well-educated or, you know, the shape of your body or the brand of your clothes or the suburb you live in or the type of car you drive. or we We have just innumerable ways of assessing people in areas that matter almost nothing when the storms come. But what is it that keeps people resilient? And God uses a word in the scriptures. And you know what it is? It's the heart. It's what the Apostle Paul describes as strength in the inner man. Think about these passages like in the Psalms. Test me, Lord, and prove me. Test my heart. Psalm 119, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from you. Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and sick. Who can understand it? In other words, our heart in its natural state has fatal flaws. And we don't survive the pain that life throws our way, the brokenness, the grief, the sin, the betrayal, all of the the financial issues. We don't get through those anxieties very well. But God says, if I am present in your life and the power of my presence and the knowledge of the power of the love of Christ is growing in your life, 
you, can, you, can, you may well have the masts torn down. And the sails of your life may well be in tatters. But you'll remain afloat because Christ is in you. And that's the hope of glory. And that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to say here. You may remember from the, from the days of David and Saul when, you know, they lined up Jesse's sons, you know, and they had all... And, 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 and the first one was impressive, remember that? Like the, the, the prophet himself, whoo, man, he's got to be the one. And this is after Saul had failed and Saul was described as an incredibly impressive man, good-looking, a head taller than anybody in the nation, a brilliant soldier, a man of humility, a good man who failed miserably because he had a sick heart. And God says to the prophet, don't look at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I find it really interesting that the Apostle Paul in this passage basically is saying that he gets on his knees and he prays for the Ephesian believers. And notice, he doesn't pray that they are physically well, though that's a good thing to pray for, for healing. He doesn't pray that they will be, you know, find joy or find a husband or a wife or pay off their debt or overcome cancer. Or, and there we are told to pray for one another. But I find it interesting that in this Ephesian church that was being tormented and oppressed by satanic influences, it was under the threat of division, it was going through a hurricane of, on spiritual dimensions. Paul says to them, I am on my knees for you. And what I'm on my knees about is that God will work in your hearts and give you the resilience to get through this. You know, I, I'm embarrassed to say, I'd like to think that I would spend a lot of time on my knees praying for people I love. And I have spent time on my knees. But Paul says what he's praying for here, on his knees is that these men and women would be strengthened with power below the waterline in their inner life. That they would know Christ. Years ago, when I was finishing up my studies in America, my dad, who was the international president of an organisation called Mission Aviation Fellowship, MAF. Some of you know MAF. And he took me down to South America and we spent a couple of weeks travelling around MAF's bases in South America and Ecuador and Venezuela and Brazil and we were out in the Amazon jungle in Brazil like miles out five hours flight in a single engine aircraft over featureless uninhabited jungle to find this little airstrip that had been cut out by a British missionary who'd been there for 27 years and he was working among a, 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 um, a nomadic people group uh, of Amazonian indigenous people and he'd been there trying to reach these people and his wife had gone out there with him and they'd given birth to a son whose name was Tim and born on the same day that I was. He'd lost his wife and he'd lost his son and he was still out there and after these two decades of ministry not a single person had come to faith 
Not only that, but because they were, they were um, nomadic people, he would wake up one morning after four or five years of working with them, learning, he'd learnt their language, cut out an airstrip by his own hands out of the jungle so that MAF could bring supplies. He'd wake up one morning and all there were were smoking fires because the, these villagers had gone somewhere else in the jungle. And he had to find them. Sometimes it took him months just to find out where they'd gone. And he'd follow them and he'd re- set up again and then he'd have to cut out another airstrip out of the jungle, cutting these trees down and, you know, year after year after year after year, wanting to reach these people with the knowledge of the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, the very message that Paul is praying for these Ephesians. And the MAF pilot told me that the last time he'd been out there, he was stuck due to weather and so he had to stay overnight. And he was woken in the morning, about 5.30 in the morning, in the next room from this Beautiful fellow, his pommy guy, had been out there all this time and he was woken by the sound of this man and it sounded like he was crying, just weeping and um, groaning. And he waited, it went on for an hour or so and then until it was breakfast. So he got up, he had to fly out and so he had breakfast with this man, Peter his name was. And over breakfast he'd said to him, look, I, I couldn't help but hear that you were weeping this morning, you were upset. Is everything okay? You know, like, did I bring some bad news from home? I mean, here's a man who just lost his wife and his son through tropical disease. He's still there. Like, what bad news could there be? But he asked the question. He said, Peter said to me, you said, no, no, nothing's wrong. He said, well, it sounded like you were upset. He said, oh, no. No, no. Well, he said, I, 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 I was just doing what I do every morning, praying for my people. He died before he ever saw what God did amongst those people, but that entire tribe are believers, the whole lot. And they are sending out workers to reach other neighbouring tribes in the Amazon in the aftermath of this man's resilience. That's the work of God, isn't it? It's a bit embarrassing for me because I, you know, I don't know that I would spend that sort of energy even maybe on my family or my kids or my neighbours or whatever. That's what God wants. And I'm not saying he wants us to be superheroes or super spiritual people. But just to understand, as Paul prays here, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. You know why he says that? Because that's one of the reasons, that's one of the secrets, I think, in the spiritual life to how do you... How do you get to that point? What is it that enables you to be strengthened to that degree where that type of resilience is a part of your spiritual life? Uh, Yesterday I was out on the bay at Western Port. We live down on Western Port Bay and my dad has a little fishing boat and he he can't take it out at the moment because he's messed up his, his, his arm. So my son Robin and I went out in this fishing boat. It hadn't been out for months and months. It was a beautiful day yesterday. The water was crystal, you know, it's calm. And not far from Hastings on the 
Peninsula, uh, there's, a, there's an old submarine moored there. It's, it's rusting away. Some of you have seen it. It's an old Oberon-class submarine that the Navy used to use. It was decommissioned and they were going to turn it into a museum, but the, the Mornington Council won't let them. So this thing's floating there, rusting away. Um, and I was reading, and it's an amazing thing. I mean, and my daughter Emma was with us, and she's reading on Google about this submarine. And she's, she's going, man, this is, look, pictures of it when it was actually in, in, in action. And she's saying, this, this submarine can dive to 600 metres. And I said, you know, there was a famous story back in the 1980s of, a, of America's first nuclear submarine called the Thresher. And it went out of the harbour in New York or somewhere to do sea trials. And it, it, it disappeared because it had a, something had happened to it. And they... It, they lost it for three or four weeks. And when they eventually found it, uh, it was just shredded on the floor of the ocean, this submarine. Because it had gone down to 600 metres, but there were faults in the engineering of the submarine and the water pressure was so great that it didn't just crush it, it shredded it. Because the pressure of water going through those broken seams turned to steam which boiled the air inside and exploded it from the inside out. And yet, if you go and read or watch documentaries, who's the guy that, you know, who's the Pommy guy that does all the, do- you know, Blue Planet and, uh, you know, Attenborough, is it? You know, underneath this rock is the most marvellous creature. You know, this, that, that bloke, whoever that is. He goes in a submarine to 10,000 metres now. Is, the, is there any difference in the water pressure of the ocean? No. What's the difference? It's the inside-out strength. And what God wants to do with us and what Paul is saying here is that he wants to do a work beneath the waterline in our hearts that gives us this inner strength, strength so that our lives aren't contingent upon lack of pressure, but rather there is an inner strength to remain intact in spite of the pressure. And isn't that true of what we need in our marriages, in our relationships, in the causes of our anxieties, in the focus of our lives, in the decisions we make, even in our spiritual lives, that God would do a work that's deep? He uses an agricultural metaphor here, doesn't he? Rooted and grounded in love, that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints how high and deep and wide is the love of God in Christ. It's an agricultural metaphor. I think it's reminiscent of what we read, uh, and the Bible uses these metaphors often, actually. For example, you know, Psalm 1, some of you know Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. How do you get that type of resilience? Well, Paul says here that it is through the combination of the power of God and the knowledge of God. So where do we get the knowledge of God? We get that through his word. And that's what Psalm 1 says, isn't it? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
He is like a tree planted by streams of water, water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaves do not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. It's the picture of a tree that is never needing to be deciduous because it's always being nourished. You know, I grew up in Papua New Guinea. I was a missionary kid, and we lived in a part of the country, well, actually most of the country, where there is no such thing as deciduous trees. No tropical trees lose their leaves in winter because there's no winter. They're always green. There's always mangoes, bananas. You know, it's a great place to live. You're all thinking that right now, aren't you? I mean, we look outside. Well, we'd read about deciduous trees in the Encyclopedia Britannica and how the seasons bring about, you know, they're green and then they go brown and gold and then they fall off and then they come back. It's like, wow, like how, how much, what, I've never seen such a thing. So we had this frangipani tree outside of our house in Weewak, um, huge, as high as this roof, always full of these beautiful white and yellow flowers and, um, no, what's, uh, hi, no yeah, frangipani, hibiscus is the red one, frangipani, and it's got this white milky sap when you pull the leaves off it. And my brother and I decided that we wanted to know what a tree looked like without its leaves. So when my old man was out flying one day, we set about and we pulled every single leaf off that tree. <laughs> every leaf. By the end of the day, we were just covered in this sticky, disgusting sap. But the tree looked amazing. It actually looked like it was dead, like a tree in winter looks like it is, right? Well, I was not popular when the old man got home, I'm telling you, right, because that was the pride of their garden, this great frangipani tree. Uh, but frangipani trees are amazing because you can take a stick and break it off and just put it in the ground and it will start to bud. And even though we got a bit of a flogging from the old man for pulling all the leaves off his tree, because the whole ground around the tree was like a foot thick of leaves, um, within about two weeks there were new shoots and within about six weeks there were new little leaves and within about three months you couldn't even tell what we'd done. But even, even with deciduous trees that do lose their leaves, you know, like apricots and apples and stuff, how do you know, those of you that garden, how do you know if something's dead when it looks dead but, it, but it's not? What do you do? You take a fingernail and you scratch beneath the surface and there's green there. See what the Apostle Paul is getting at. And he, t- he describes himself this way, doesn't he? Look, I'm beaten, but I'm not down. I'm pressed on all sides, but I'm not crushed. How is he able to say that? He's able to say that because for the Apostle Paul, the inner work of God through his spirit was what gives us resilience. So what does that look like? What does it look like in your life? Well, I would just leave you with a few thoughts. One is that we we need to find time and allocate priority to the things of God outside of just rocking along to church on a Sunday. That we need to be people of his word. Planted, it says, like a tree by rivers whose leaves don't wither and who bear fruit in season 
Is that a part of the rhythm of your life? You know, I'm at a theological college. I'm the principal of an MST. And I know there are students going through there all the time and some of them go through there and they're really smart, a lot smarter than me. And the people that teach there are definitely a lot smarter than me. Um, But I can tell you this as well. You can go through a school like Melbourne School of Theology and get straight A high distinctions in every single subject and be a complete disaster in in, in ministry and life. That's why one of the things we talk about at MST is that we have a, our hope is that every student and every member of faculty and every member of staff that is in that place or passing through the doors of that place will be confronted with not, not just with informational theology but transformational theology and the two are not the same because one's up here and the other's down here. God wants to do a work in your heart, reorienting the affections of your soul, rearranging the priorities of your life. As Corrie ten Boom said, who put it so beautifully, I have learnt to hold on to the things of this world loosely so that it doesn't hurt when God pries them out of my hands. Well, you know what? He will pry them out of your hands one day because your hands will grow limp. And one of my dear friends and mentors, Dr. Howard Hendricks, used to say, you never see a hearse towing a U-Haul trailer. You don't take anything with you except a transformed heart. And this beautiful opportunity to be salt and light to others who are desperately in need of what Paul calls here the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. That's why you're here, men and women. To be encouraged, to encourage one another, to stir up one another in the gifts of the Spirit of God, to hold one another accountable, as it says in Jude, to snatch some, of, to some, some snatch from the fire but others to get behind them and encourage them. But perhaps above all, to pray for one another. Pray the prayer that Paul prays here at the start, that we read out, that Tyler read out so beautifully, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength. It's an interesting word, that you would have strength to comprehend. That's a visceral guts, that you have the guts, the courage to press into the truth of God and discover the breadth and length and height and depth and to know that love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. And then this verse 20, a little note of encouragement. He can do it. He can do it. He wants to do it. More abundantly than you can ask or think, how according to that power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in Christ Jesus through all generations. You know, for your workmates, if you're in the marketplace... That's what God wants 
to be in you. Salt and light. That there is a transforming reality and an eternal hope that overcomes the storms, the waves, the tsunamis, the lightning, the hail, the wind. Because there's ballast in the keel. The presence of Christ. That's what keeps you resilient. All right? Let me just pray. Let me just ask you to close your eyes and have a think about what that might mean for you. Personally, in your family, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your anxieties, in your fears, in your illnesses, in your grief, in your hope that God would grow that. Let's just be quiet just for a few seconds and ask the Lord what this passage might say to you. Father, we ask that you would help us know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge and that we would all, and, and this church community, meeting in a random school hall in a suburb of Melbourne, would nonetheless be filled with all the fullness of God and that that power that is work within us be manifest in our lives and through our lives. For our own sakes we pray this, but also for the sake of your glory among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.